We are live, folks, and uh, it is Wednesday. It is interview day, so I will have my special guest back in the conference room with me in just a moment. We were chatting before we got on with you guys. Uh, Charles Mayfield, we're going to be talking about regenerative farming and meat production, pastured meat production at the homestead, small community farmstead level. I think this is a really, really important topic because I'm looking out and I'm seeing a war on food. I know some people think that's crazy talk, but with the number of processing plants and other things that have been burnt down, and the stupid policies we've had, it feels like there's a war on food. And there's definitely a war on meat. Um, they want us to eat Beyond Burger, which is like soy muck with uh, beet juice. I'm not eating that. So the more meat we can produce for ourselves, the less we have to rely on them. So that makes it an important topic. Uh, also, I just think it's an important topic because I'm an environmentalist, and I believe the best thing that we can do for the environment is uh, manage ruminants and do rotational grazing and manage other pastured animals because I think it grows topsoil and grows perennial grasses and it sequesters carbon. So all of the stuff that the the eco people say they want, we can actually do with this. We can do that small scale, large scale, mid scale, whatever. But we're going to talk about it in a way where you can do it for yourself today. Before I bring Charles on though, our sponsor today today uh sponsor of the day today is Paul Wheaton and Permies.com. And Paul's got something real real cool going on. He's got a brand new Kickstarter launched just today. If you're watching a live stream I'd appreciate it if you might wait until the audio goes out to contribute. I do have a bit of an affiliate link uh, for this one. I, I guess I could drop that in here later. Maybe I can pick it up while Charles is talking, but my little piece might be nice. Um, but anyway, I, I really think it's worth backing, and I want to I show it to you guys right now. Um, it's called Free Heat, and it is an awesome Kickstarter. This is Paul's 11th Kickstarter. A lot of times people are like, I, I don't know if I want to do a Kickstarter because what if it doesn't fund? Will, you know, will I, will I get the item or whatever? As you can see, Paul, being a veteran of this, uh, he had an $8,600 goal, and this launched this morning, and he's already fully funded at twenty-one grand. So basically, you're buying into the product. It is funded. It's going to get made. He's got a lot of different uh, packages and ways that you can be part of this. And what I want to do for you right now, though, I just want to play for you. The two-minute video, and then we'll bring Charles on, and we'll talk about uh, pasture meat production. I'm Paul Wheaton, and this is my 11th Kickstarter. Rocket mass heaters are possibly the most powerful solution to many problems today. Global problems and individual problems. For individuals, one rocket mass heater can save thousands of dollars and bring greater comfort. Globally, if a billion people used rocket mass heaters as their primary heat source, it would solve a list of world problems. The only barrier to this solution is knowledge. Last fall, I hosted another rocket mass heater jamboree with several instructors, we taught the basics. We brought in the experts and explored new territory.
we built two new rocket mass heaters using the best of our current knowledge. We built a rocket heater without a mass. We also tried two commercial rocket mass heater products. We recorded it all. And the big Kickstarter question is, is there enough interest in making a movie to do the editing? Well, there you guys go. I apologize. There might have been a little echo there. I wasn't smart enough to mute my mic, but I think you got the gist. Definitely consider uh, checking out Paul's Kickstarter. I'll be adding a banner here in a minute uh, as well with a link on it that you guys can use uh, to sign up for that Kickstarter and support it. But what I want to do now is bring on Charles Mayfield, who is returning to TSP. Let me fix that frame a little bit. And uh, last time we had Charles on, we talked about his product, his uh, his product based on uh, uh, pork lard for skincare. And uh, I've since tried it. It's a fantastic product. But I was like, Charles is a regenerative farmer. And we didn't really talk about regenerative farming or meat production or any of that good stuff. So I asked him to come back on. He filled out another form. We got him booked as quickly as possible. Hey, Charles, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Jack, it's great to be here. Good to see you again. Yeah, you as well, man. For people that missed the first episode, do you want to give them just the, the quick nuts and bolts of who is Charles Mayfield and, and how did you get into regenerative farming in the first place? Sure, yeah. The nuts and bolts are pretty simple. Um, I did a lot of reading and research. I, I came from sort of the paleo nutrition community um, for a number of years. Uh, my ex-wife and I wrote a number of cookbooks in the paleo space. and uh, that movement really started to shift towards food access and sustainability a number of years ago. I had grown up in sm in small small town America, but never really uh, ventured into farming and just started reading. Got to start meeting people like Joel Salatin, Will Harris, Alan Williams, and um, you know it didn't take long for for me to get hyper curious. So moved up to back home to East Tennessee a number of years ago from Atlanta to to do just that to to take a shot at growing uh, small-scale uh, regenerative meat production. Uh, I've got two young kids, and so I was uh, interested in cutting the Whole Foods bill down, uh, Whole Foods uh, shopping bill down. They don't have a lot of those in rural Tennessee anyway. And, uh, yeah, just started uh, in 2016 with a batch of broilers, a batch of layers, and a, and a handful of pigs. And and fast forward to now, we're we're still very small. Uh, I would say a, a, a maybe a standard deviation above homesteading uh, okay. in scale, but uh, I've got probably thirty to fifty customers between uh, Atlanta, Chattanooga, and, and my hometown here in uh, Athens, Decatur, Tennessee, and and uh, we do we do pastured beef, pork, uh, chicken, eggs. We'll do a batch of turkeys uh, every year, and then I've got a a, a guy that's uh, helping me on the farm now. That's tinkering now with some sheep and ducks and so we're okay. always always looking around and exploring new new ways so how many acres do you have to do all that i'm on a, a piece of property now that's about 350 acres oh okay um, but yeah it's a pretty big swath of land uh, only about only about 120 of it's in pasture okay. and uh and and i'm 
I'm leasing some of the land and, and running in conjunction with the with the landowner. He's a he's a beef guy. Yeah. And so uh, we've got. I'd say total head is around 85 or 90, and that's that's uh, mama cows, uh, yearlings, and then uh, what's what's finishing now. So that's cool. That's cool. And I think that like not trying to go too big too fast is a really good plan for people because I have seen people pour their life savings into getting themselves a couple hundred acres or more. And I often think, boy, you could have made a much better financial astute decision by owning a couple acres and leasing some land. But on top of it, then they go try to develop the entire 200 acres in one year. And they don't know anything about ranching and farming yet. They're just learning. They don't know the first thing about managing cattle. They don't, you know, they haven't even watched Greg Judy videos on how to know that cow's going to die and he needs to go to the sale barn before it does. And all of a sudden they're, they're in way over their head and it happens at the homestead level. It happens at the farmstead level. It happens at small commercial. I don't think it happens at large commercial because you put yourself out of business before you get there. But you know, with that in mind, when it comes to species, like you mentioned turkeys and I've said easiest meat I've ever grown in my life. If you don't let them kill themselves until they're about six weeks old, they're Mack trucks. Nothing, nothing other than a bobcat. Can, can can really stop them once you get them there. But I've gotten to the point where, like, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I don't need any more. So in your opinion, when you're going to do this, is there a point where you say kind of I'm going to specialize in these three or four or two or whatever and stop? Or does maybe that number change over time? Like when you start, maybe you start with one thing, you learn that thing, and you add another thing, and maybe you still cap it somewhere. Well, I I think, you know, you got to back up to like, what's your goal starting out? Let's, you know, this homesteading model. So if I'm a, am I just feeding my family or maybe I've got a neighbor? Um, I, you know, small scale farming is a lot like cooking, right? I could spend all the time cooking a meal to just feed me Mm -hmm. or I could scale that meal just a little bit and feed myself three or four meals this week. So, um, but, but, but to answer your question, I would say, you know, who am I trying to feed first and foremost? And, you know, they say chickens are the gateway drug. Uh, I would say poultry is the gateway drug. I, I, I do like turkeys quite a bit, but, um, I, I would recommend that people start with, with a, with a dueling species. So I, I love the idea of a, of an herbivore or a ruminant species paired with poultry. Yeah, I do too. Um, I really like that. And now, you know, this, I'm a huge fan of pigs. Yeah. Uh, now, now you got to feed pigs. You know, you can't. They're not. They're not a ruminant species, so you're going to have to deal with some feed. But I think pigs work very well with poultry as well as sort of a, uh, you know, synchronized uh, duality of meat raising. Um, and they're and they're fast. You know, and they can. This is another thing when you you talk about land. You know, if if you've got a budget for 200 acres, great. But you can do a lot on 20. Uh, 20 keep you busy for, for the rest of your life. And, uh, and when you start talking about, uh, you know, sort of that holistic regenerative model, uh, especially meat, uh, marginal land works great. Uh, I, I'm here in East Tennessee, you know, we've got these rolling hills and a lot of rocky ground, rocky top, you know, and, uh, man, the pigs and the cows don't care. Uh, you know, this isn't row cropping. So, if you're if you're looking for a homestead or looking for a spot, you know you don't have to necessarily have a lot of pasture to make it work from a meat production standpoint. 
Yeah, I agree. And what I'll add to that is like something I heard from Darby Simpson a long time ago when it comes to something like pigs. People say, well, I want to get like two pigs and raise two pigs for my family. And I just want to feed my family. And he's like, don't do that. He's like, you will have to buy more feed in. But it's the same amount of infrastructure and work to raise eight to 12 pigs that it is to do two. And anybody can find a way to sell six to eight pigs, which will pay for everything and put some money in the pocket and pay for development and repay for the infrastructure in the first year. And then you got paid to eat your pigs. And that that's one of the things I've heard Darby say over the years. It made it you know, enough that I'm repeating it probably eight years later in this conversation. It won't go out of my head like. It makes me think of Greg Judy's, like his ultimate line to me, Greg Judy's ultimate line is, why would you do that? He'll be like, this is a way that you lose money, so why would you do that? And so while Darby didn't say, why would you do that? Like I fill the blank in with that. Why, why would you race to unless you just didn't have the room, right? Unless you're, if you're doing like a victory pig from uh, World War II, if you've seen how they used to do pigs back then, and that was like, you know, you were going to raise them that way. But if you're going to be doing it on pasture, I can't see that you don't have room, you know, even with a few acres for, let's say, six at least. And then you got four you can sell. Yep. Well, and, and um, yeah, Darby and I have been going back and forth on this for years. And, and I, I like uh, I like also what Joel Salton said. Your, your biggest expense is your time. It's, you know, walking out to feed or hauling things out. And so t- time is fixed. It's <laughs> if you're going to spend an hour, you might as well do it on, you know, eight. Uh, and and, and, and the, it's also around the management. So, you know, w- with proper management, you can stack and, and intensify uh, your animal impact. And so very rare, I mean, under very rare circumstances, would I say you couldn't have at least four to six pigs, um, uh, you know, pr- probably eight to 10, but again, you sort of, you start reaching a, a point of, uh, a ch- challenging point. I, I don't mm-hmm. know where the break points sit, but I would say, yeah, for pigs. Okay. So for pigs, uh, we'll just use general terms. Maybe eight to 12 is a really good number. Six to eight to 12. Um, yeah. you know, for t- turkeys, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure either, but I've done a dozen and it was, it was almost no work. Like I trained them to go well, in. The, I trained them to go in the with the ducks and the chickens in the house at night. And the only thing I can say is, at the point you're finishing them, the amount of food they can eat is staggering. It's because you're talking about birds that get 50, 60 pounds here, right? If you if you grow them all the way out. Oh yeah. Well, and the thing I really like about turkeys is they're way more aggressive foragers, and so. Yeah. If you've got pasture or even sort of woodlot edges, um, especially if you've got a lot of acreage because you can move them more frequently. Yeah. Uh, man, I, I, you still may have to feed your turkeys, but they, they are, uh, they, they find very creative ways to die until they're about six weeks old. Yep. And then they are velociraptors, man. They're just, yeah, it's fantastic. like if, if they'll, they'll, they'll bury themselves under their water and kill themselves when they're pulsed. Like they just, I don't get it. But like I said, it's right about five, six weeks that they're like, I am now indestructible and they're cool birds, man. Like my favorite thing about them, you talk about what they forage on, they eat everything. So grasshoppers are gone. Like it's like, it is a velociraptor of, of uh, and it's like walking around your own little mini velociraptor flock because they follow you. But I get these things like in my socks or on my legs, these little seeds 
that cap in about a month from now, they start to come out a lot. And I don't know what the actual name of those. We refer to them as beggar's lice here, and they get in your hair on your leg. And if you make the mistake of rubbing them, then they wind up in your leg hair and all. And I could literally call those birds over, and whether it was my socks or off my leg hair, they would pick those things off like a surgeon. Like you try to pull it off and like threads are coming out or your hair is pulling, and they go peck and it's gone. Like that just tells you, I know it's not very useful, but it tells you that the forage ability that this animal has, they are far and away my favorite and is a small producer, really small for me. They're the most money I ever made because I did literally no work. I, my system was you come pick your turkey up, you self-process or take it, I'll give you a name of a processor, weigh the bird after it's processed, pay me on the live weight and honor system. Now, if I was selling 1200, I couldn't do that, but no. selling 12 a year. You know, and it's a premium thing, and they sell out. Like, I didn't do it this year or last year, but I'm still kicking the idea around. I can still get poults on the ground right now. Turkeys, okay, so turkeys are funny because you have to order them. I, I, I finish my birds in about 17, 18 weeks. And so you have to order them. You have to schedule to order them like 30 weeks in advance. So you're like, you're emailing everybody, and no, no one says, oh, I want a turkey, but by God, Three weeks before Thanksgiving, your phone's just ringing off the hook. There's this real interesting balance of inventory, and and uh, we had a we had a terrible situation last year in our brooder. Um, like the second day they were in the brooder, this huge king snake got in there, and uh, it didn't it didn't eat any of them, but they got scared and piled up. So it was not good. I've had that happen too, where they, they pile into a corner and half of them end up dead. It's like the cumulative weight of the outer bunch, just cr like a snake, like, like a snake, like crushes the inner bunch. Yep. Um, what's the general good formula for stocking per acre across different species? Well, uh, it depends a little bit on your grass. Let's just talk ruminants. Uh, depends a little bit on your grass. Um, I would, for your listeners, I forget the name of it, but if you Googled like there's a, there's a pasture stick. It looks like a ruler. Uh, it's a, it's probably a quarter inch squared ruler yardstick and it's got all sorts of, um, uh, heights and measurements on it for sort of measuring your, your cow day grass. Uh, but generally speaking, let's just say, Um, you know, the worst pastures I've seen, even when they're flush, are probably 150 cow day grass. So that's, it'll support 150 cows per acre for one day. You can do your own math there. Uh, smaller ruminants, um, sheep, uh, goats typically are one seventh the equivalency for a cow. And so your stocking density, I would say if you're doing ruminants, start with your ruminants. I don't know that you've got a, a big limitation on poultry that, that you're running behind it. But, um, you know, if it's broilers, you, you, you don't want heavy, heavy nitrogen load on your soil. So, you know, in terms of poultry, you want to sort of limit the, um, annual, uh, droppings to, to like a once, once a year, right? So if you're running chicken tractors or something like that and doing, doing, uh, broilers or you know my layers and my turkeys all run through the chicken tractors until they're uh, of uh, appropriate age but 
just do, do your math on that. I, I can't speak to anyone's particular property, but I'd say, you know, on an acre, you got 44,000 square feet. You know, your chicken tractors, was that 120 square, mine are 10 by 12, so 120 okay. square feet. And so how many days on the pasture, you do the math and, and go for How many that. moves can you get out of it? Yeah, because I'm big on, I don't want to bring, even small scale, I don't want to bring the animal back to the same location it was at. I would say with my land, I, I don't really say not this year, but I probably don't want to occupy that same space more than twice a year when I'm doing tractoring. That's, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it. With poultry. Yeah. With, with poultry. Yeah. It's a, and it, I think this is important to, to differentiate with, with pigs. Uh, I would say, you know, e- e- even almost, uh, landscape agnostic, whether it's woods or pasture. Uh, you know, you're going to want a good 10 weeks of rest in between impact of pigs with, uh, any ruminant species. It's really more about, uh, how's the grass returning? Uh, but you know, gen- generally speaking, you want to let it rest at least a month, see everything, you know, grow back. Um, yeah. so, you know, again, that just allows you to th- think about leveraging that acre. You're going to leverage it multiple times with, ruminant and, and omnivorous mammals, uh, yeah. you're, you're going to stack that a number of times, but from a poultry standpoint, it's sort of a one and done on an annual basis. Yeah. Um, and then with poultry, how do you address leader follower relationships? So does the, the like the, the chicken or egg come first? So does the chicken or the cow come first? I, I'm kind of a philosophy. You put the ruminant through, you rest, and then you put the chicken through. Always. Yeah, always lead with the ruminant species. I tell you, it's it's so cool right now. This is er, er, you know late spring, and we're trying to mimic nature. And I've got my uh, our stalker herd is in the field adjacent to my chickens, so I see them every day because I'm out and back to the to the broilers. And we've got all these um, egrets and various migratory birds, and and they're white, and so you can always see them. I mean, they just come in and they just flock to the cows, but. But yeah, to answer that question, always follow, uh, big poopers by little poopers. Yep. Yep. And you also have disruptors, right? So your, your chickens come through and all those cow patties, they've had, that's, to, to me, given the rest is, is good advice, but you also have time for that patty to get found by all kinds of beetles and flies and all sorts of things. So it's all in that patty. And then the chicken comes along and it's like, Oh, all the good stuff's in there. So they tear it up, spread it out, and they eat the flies, the maggots, whatever, and they also disrupt and distribute not only the patty, but the seed can take, because there's a lot of seed that passes through the room in it. So now they're doing the seeding work for you. And so, like, when I talk about not bringing the animal back, and I, I know you understand this, but just so the audience understands it, I'm not talking about no animals. I'm talking about that same critter. So if the cow goes through, the chicken goes through, you know, and then maybe if that's all you're doing, then nobody comes through until next season. Well, the, cat, the cows will come back through. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, here, here's an interesting point. Okay, so we've got, let's say you've got a, a chicken tractor set up. Okay, that's a, a broiler, highly compacted, highly dense uh, yeah. situation. That's a one time a year. That's what um, I'm saying. Yep. So if you had like a, if you had a portable e- egg uh, we call ours an egg mobile. I, mm-hmm. I steal ev- everything from Salatin. I just steal from him. But, uh, you know, it, the egg mobile. So think about that one acre. Y- you could, you could, uh, bring that egg mobile and graze that acre repeatedly throughout the season. 
but you're just going to want to park the, uh, park it where, you know, again, where the concentrated poop's going to be. You're going to want to park that in different spots. So they'll go out, they'll venture out and forage, but your concentration of, of, uh, nitrogen, which is uh, going to be predominantly underneath whatever they're sleeping in, uh, you're going to want to move that around. And they, you know, I think the magic number is three to five days, uh, of poultry following, uh, ruminants. Okay. Uh, they say like three to five days is the optimal time of fly impact, lay eggs, eggs hatch into larva. Okay. Um, so if you, if you want, if you want maximum <laughs> dung heap, like spread out three to five days, uh, having said that, I mean, I've seen old crusted over, uh, cow pats that still get destroyed. And, and, um, a a tip pro tip for your, for your listeners, I, you know, you're, cause again, you're feeding your chickens. I mean, I have chicken feed. I have to augment their, their diet and I'll take a bucket of chicken feed in an, in an old paddock with old cow patties and I'll hand toss a handful of feed on on those old patties. And so once they, peck and break the seal yeah. of the patty, it's just, it's game on, man. So, Yeah, I had a neighbor that unfortunately moved. They had two horses, and they needed to get rid of their horse manure. And I have my West Pastures just the worst piece of my little three-acre homes that I have. And I'm like, you can dump every freaking horse turd out. And I'd say, just dump it in a different spot and don't dump it in a pile. Spread it out. It can be close, but it needs to be like one layer. As long as you do that, and so I had for like two years, every week, they were bringing a cart of horse turds and just putting it in different spots on my field. And that's exactly what I did. I would throw seed on top of it, and then the chickens would just go freaking berserk on it. Ducks as well, but not like they don't scratch. But, okay, just so we're clear for people listening, when you're talking about going back over the same land with layers, that's because we're not tractoring. It's more like we have a dwelling, and you're doing like electronet. Is that what you're doing so that they're not all condensed into one spot or you're just moving their housing and you're letting them basically free range around their support system or how are you doing that? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. That's a good point to clarify. Uh, well, you can, you can do, uh, intense layer management with netting, uh, or you can just let them free range. Now layers will go, you know, think of 400 yard radius. They'll, they'll get out there mm-hmm. pretty far. So if you're on, only on an acre, you're probably going to want to fence them in. Yeah. And again, if this is a backyard homesteader situation, you might be only talking about 20 birds. Yeah. Uh, you can build, you could almost build a portable eggmobile, uh, almost with the same square footage as like an old wheelbarrow, just a little bit bigger yeah. to house, the, to house the birds. Right. Yeah. Jack. Cause uh, they're only in there at night. So nothing eats. So the raccoon doesn't eat it. That's right. And so 20 birds, you'd probably be able to get away with, um, with two or four nesting boxes for that many birds that they'll share. Yeah. And so you're talking about a really small, even like hand wheelbarrow type, uh, situation. And so you can move, think about moving that around even within a poultry netting setup. And then, and then you open up a new poultry netting and, and roll yeah. them in there. So, so you let them graze the, the, a tenth of an acre poultry net for a week or four or five days, and you can move them around within that circle every day, and then you open up another circle. 
And Green Country Acres is saying ducks love following cattle too. I've seen a lot, and he has a pretty good sized Muscovy duck flock at at the uh, the permaculture farm in Australia. And instead of doing what we're talking about with the chickens, they literally run the Muscovies and the cattle together as a single mob. And the Muscovies do massive fly control. So you don't end up like out there messing around with your cow and it kicks the shit out of you because it got bit in the ass by a horsefly. Right. And the, he said the ducks will immediately go straight into the patties. So I don't know if I, if I would do the same thing, but I'm not one to tell him he's wrong. <laughs> That's for sure that dude. Um, but they're still running like chickens behind, like, like you're talking about, but they're running the ducks right with them. Uh, and they don't have to do anything to do that. The ducks just like go, Oh, the cows are going here. I'm going here too. And because they, Muscovies are lazy as well for those that have never worked with them. Like they don't, like you're talking about like your layers. Um, and I'll say that with layer ducks too. Same thing. They'll go, if you don't stop them, they'll go four or 500 yards from their base of operations. The Muscovies are kind of like, well, there's the swimming pool. There's a deck. There's some shade. As long as there's food and I ain't hungry, eh, I'm good for the day. You know, I'm going to kind of hang out around here. So, but if you give them something like that where they're, they're interacting with that herd, as the herd moves, they kind of like tag along. And then I've read studies being done with like horses and dairy in, uh, both in Canada where they figured out a certain ratio of one Muscovy per like five horses or five cows. And it completely destroys the fly problem. And it's because, because they're just, if you've ever like everyone, like probably once a year, we'll have a big fly flare up around here and then they'll go in the coop. And if there's a couple of Muscovies in there, you just go in the coop and you, you just stand there and listen. It sounds like popcorn. It's like snap, 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 snap. So I mean, there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, with that in mind, Cuddy, do you have any top resources for people like in learning more and getting started? Well, you mentioned Greg Judy earlier. I, I, um, I have just started reading it. You know, Salatin's got a new model out, a uh, new book out. I think it's Micro Polyface, uh, sort of taking their model downgraded to a, um, to a homesteader scale. Uh, like I said, I just started diving into the book, but, but Salatin doesn't write stuff that's not true. He's, he's yeah. pretty well steeped. Uh, you know, Greg Judy is another one. Uh, I, I, I love the work that, uh, Darby Simpson and Diego Footer put out for years, uh, uh, farms, small farm smart, I believe is one of their podcasts. I, I think that's a great resource. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> this isn't going to, this is obvious, but I mean, Jack, you put a lot of material out on your Q and A's and, and, uh, I mean, I, I, I have found I'm a recent convert to the survival podcast, admittedly, okay. but, but I, I have found, uh, a lot of what you talk about when it comes to farming and homesteading to be, uh, absolutely on point. And so, um, I love the experts that you bring in and have them weigh in on a, on a question. That's fantastic. Uh, but I, again, I'm going to default to probably Greg Jude. Oh, Stockman grass farmer. That's a great publication to, uh, order. I would recommend. Um, but anything from Salatin, especially his new book, micro polyface, uh, Greg Judy. Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think there's so many. Uh, I, I think that's probably a good spot to start for your listeners. I would agree. I would say, like, uh, if you want to do birds, like Salatin's Pastured Poultry Profits is probably the, the place to begin with that. And then don't be afraid, even with these experts, right, to modify based on your climate. Because, like, 
what Darby said, if I, he said in my climate, if I use Salatin's chicken tractor, I cook my birds to death. So he went with a higher rise tractor. So everything's the same, except I think he uses hog panels to create his arcs with. And so if you like, I would never use one of those low chicken bakers here in Texas. I mean, if they'll die in Indiana or wherever, I think, I think Darby's in Indiana. Um, I mean, here they won't just die. Like you'll go out and like you can just eat the bird. Like it'll be cooked. Uh, if you're, if you're running birds through June and July here with a uh, tractor like that. So always adapt to your unique situation. But I think the other side of that is don't convince yourself that you're that unique. I think some people are like, but see, I'm this and I'm that. No, in the end, a, a chicken's a chicken, a lamb's a lamb, a cow's a cow, a turkey's a turkey. They have the same needs. But I think what makes it a big difference is when we start tractoring. So, you know, I'm really mindful right now. I've got goslings on the ground and they're not quite big enough to let them with everybody else yet. And we're still doing the hand raising thing so that they don't become another goose mafia. So there, I have a 25 section of goat fence and I just made a loop and we just drag it around like a tractor form. And I'm really mindful right now with the temperatures we're hitting. Are they in shade? You know, cause if they're not in shade, now they're stuck there. My ducks that are free ranging, I don't care. If they want shade, they'll go to shade. So when we put an animal, you know, M- Michael Jordan's big soliloquy about beekeeping was they didn't ask you to put them in a box. You put them in a box. You got to take care of them, right? If they lived in the woods, they wouldn't have all these problems, but you put them in the box. And when we put animals into a tractor or like Justin Rhodes's chick saw with the netting and all, even with the electro netting in a pretty big area, you put them in a confined space. You have to provide more attention than let's say if you're paddock shifting cattle and they're on an acre a day, they'll find a place they want to be. But if you're putting a chicken in a 10 by 12 area, you got to think more. Same with rabbit hutches, all that stuff. As soon as that animal can't choose its location, you have to do the work for the animal. Yeah, you mentioned Justin Rhodes is another great resource. I'm glad you mentioned him. Um, you know, one of the one of the reasons I, I, I'm going to point to like a Justin Rhodes or, or again or your show or a Salton is because they are running such a multi speciated project. So you can pick and choose, um, but you've got a, a, a very broad. Uh, level of experience. Uh, and I will say this to, to the newbie or somebody that's just wanting to get started, like pick someone to learn from and, and learn their system and stick to their system. Maybe end up being the wrong system, but I, you know, I, I was guilty of this early on. Like, Oh, I can do that a little different. And I can do this a little different. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's better to, to, it's better to stick to the system that, of the person you're learning from, get really good at it and then make your modifications. Um, it's so funny. You talk about, uh, cooking your chickens in the Texas sun. Again, I'm a big fan of the salads and tractors. I don't know why in the world Darby would do those big things. Uh, but, but here, here's the question, right? Here's the question. So if you're cooking your chickens in June and July, Right. Using a, a Salatin style tractor. Well, maybe that means that you can actually run chickens in January, February or November, December when I'm shut down because it's too damn yeah. cold. Right. Yeah. And so uh, the chicken is a really interesting bird because it's a tropical bird. Right. Uh, people forget that. But so almost anywhere in North America, I'm going to say you've got a six to eight month 
chicken season. It just might not be the summer. Yeah. It might be closer yeah. to the winter. Um, obviously Alaska is a little unique and even in the northern states, uh, unique, but you've got a six to eight month pasture poultry, uh, non hoop house model. Yeah. It just may be six different months. See, and if I'm going to run broilers here, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I figure I had three weeks of brooding, so I don't care that it's cold out. So I'm going to probably put my chickens in the brooder in or around March the 1st. So now I've got three weeks there. I'm third week of March, spring, uh, spring solstice, right? Spring equinox. I'm sorry. Spring equinox. I'm dropping them on the ground in a tractor. Um, by the end of May, uh, April into early May, it's time to graduate. Right. And I've not even really got most. I'm going to say this with Texas. Most years it hasn't got hot yet. And meaning that I haven't observed hobbits throwing rings into my backyard to get rid of them yet. Right. Um, but no, I don't want to do chickens in August. And we did it once. And it was the it was our first year. So you can forgive our ignorance. But it was like we did the we did the math to the first big fall workshop. And we're like. I wonder how these red broilers are, the, the, the Freedom Rangers. And we did the math and we're like, oh, we have like exactly tw- or like 12 or 14, whatever weeks it was to that workshop. Like if we get them right now, we can do this. And we did it and we didn't have any losses, but it was a lot more of us having to really take care of them. And I had, uh, Josiah here as an intern at the time, so he had to do it, but I, I wouldn't want to do it again. I really wouldn't. And I also would say those birds, uh, I don't know how commercially viable they are for the American market because they have massive lake quarters and it's really dark meat. And you can, if you cook it with the bone, you can cook it till it falls apart and the bone's still red. It's totally safe, but you know how the consumer's mind is. And then you don't get anywhere near the size of the breast you do with like a Cornish cross. And then I'll say something that's probably heresy here, but I think for the homesteader, Man, you're, you wouldn't be wrong for just picking two breeds and making your own babies. You know, uh, uh, Brahma and, uh, a Buff Orpington and cross them and then take those babies and tractor them and do one or two runs a year. And I think that's like, that's where this started in my head. The homesteader, the small farmsteader, like what we just said about starting March 1st and ending by, you know, early May. What else do you need? Like, you're right. You can get two, three runs in. But if I'm growing chickens for my family and I grow 50 chickens in a cycle, which isn't even hard, right? How many, how many chickens am I going to feed me, my wife and my, you know, son and daughter-in-law and grandkids a year? That's a, a whole chicken a week all year long. I like other food. Right. I have fish. I have ducks. I, you know, I, I get beef from butcher box and all like, so I only need so much chicken. And I think that's something that really makes the chicken like this perfect product for the homesteader for a meat production thing, because you have this roughly 12 week cycle done. Right. I'm nine months. I don't have to worry about it anymore. The birds are processed. They're cut up. They're in the freezer. Well, I, I listen, I, I've been around around and back on this, I actually really admire the Cornish cross, like the, the super industry bird. Yeah, um, I do. Too. I'm not putting it down. Don't, don't get I, me wrong. I, there. I, no, I'm actually, uh, I think it, 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 I think it illustrates sort of a miracle, right? Because those birds, it's, it's not fun to watch as fast as they grow, but they convert food to muscle 
so fast. And, you know, your 12 week window will, I mean, God, with a, with a corner's cross, you're really talking about coming down to seven or eight tops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you the other thing too, Jack. Um, if you've got a hoop house, Okay. So if you're trying to do winter gardening and, and, yeah. and again, if, if I'm on a, if I'm in a homestead situation, at some point you're going to have a hoop house. It's, they're just too dadgum handy, uh, in the, in the winter months. Lord, you could almost raise a batch of birds in there every winter, you know, as a, as an offset or an augmentation to, um, winter meat production. Um, go ahead. No, that's a good idea. And what I'm thinking is that the right way to do that. Not that there's a wrong way, but the right way would be make it mobile, not so much for r- routine movement, but so that you can maybe move it after that cycle um, and put everything elevated for growing all your – because you're going to grow – like in, if you're trying to grow tomatoes in, in December and January, I think you're trying too hard. I mean this is greens, brassias, coal crops. Like that's, that's, the, that's the money if you want to put it that way. And I think, so I can lift that up off the ground with, so I don't have to bend my old ass over anymore. I can put those birds on the ground and those birds, Cornish crosses, they're not going up. They're, they're, they're like Quasimodo's, you know, they might no. in their like first week, like when they first put their feathers on the first time, they might get up there once. But by the time they're two weeks old, I mean, cause I've seen them get out of uh two foot high stock hangs. But it's like it's like a three day window where they have enough feathers and not enough butt, and once they put the butt on, it's over. They can't get off. They can't go over a dish. So you could, you're right, and you could raise, you know, even a dozen. Oh, I mean, yeah. Depends on how big your house is, right? Depends on how big the house is. I mean, you brought up an interesting, and I thought about this. You brought up the the idea of a portable hoop structure. Yeah. Um, you know, more more of a sort of taking what Darby does and scaling it a little bigger. Uh, yeah. I was thinking more in terms of like a, a hoop house, a permanent hoop house where you're planting, you know, you're doing your, your spring starts and stuff in there. You can always throw, you know, a, a foot's worth of, of um, wood chips in there in the winter just to yeah. give them enough bedding. Uh, you know, you the other thing thinking, too. You got me thinking about doing this, not so much in the hoop house, but my aviary. Um Cause I would have 10, so it's 10 by 10 by 48 really. So I would have 10 by 32 if I, I'd have to put like a half fence in where I have my little mini pond in there that I do my aquaponics in in the spring, summer and fall because they'll kill themselves. They'll go straight. It's a, it's a six by nine foot, 11 inch deep spill tray. I made into a small pond and they'll, they'll go right in there and they're dead. I've, I've had chickens kill themselves in, in the little wash tubs we put out for the ducks. Like it's, it's insane how suicidal they are when they're young. So another species we haven't talked about, which again, I, this all sort of gets triggered. I, I'm thinking about it in relationship to the hoop house and stacking poultry in a hoop house, but rabbits, um, that's another one you can, you know, again, back to stacking, even outdoors on acreage, uh, you can stack a lot of rabbits in a very small space. Uh, yeah. They come indoors very well. So that's another one. Awesome. So what equipment do you think is really essential to pasture meat farming? Portable fence. Uh, I'm a big fan of Premier One. I hope that they are uh, not having – I hope that in the future they don't have all the inventory supply-side backups that uh, we're experiencing. Uh, 
the, the netting, especially for poultry, is magic. Uh, you can get away with making your own two or three wire fence for cattle or ruminants or pigs, mm-hmm. but that netting is magic for uh, for poultry management. Uh, I, I love solar energizers, portable solar energizers. You know, depending on your your homestead and your acres and your access to power, uh, every every energizer. Um, Every non-solar, I use a lot of Speedrite uh, 1000s and 2000s, and uh, these are units where you can hook up to a deep cycle battery, or it's also got a, a an AC current uh, hookup. Uh, but you got you got to have protection and, and 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 barriers for your animals, and and there's just no better substitute than than hot electric fence. Um, waterers, waters, the next big thing. And so I'm a big fan of using gravity and float valves. And I, again, it's, it's, it's very basic technology, but you got to be able to fill up a reservoir and walk away knowing your, your animals, whatever animal can get, can get water, uh, for, you don't want to have to worry about running out of water, uh, certainly on a daily basis. So, um, the float valves are a big deal. And then, and then shade, I mean, for your, for your various animals, you want to make sure they've got, you've got adequate shade. I'm trying to think what else. What are, what are kind of your go-tos for feeders and waterers? Uh, the Plasson waterers for poultry. I love the, the bell waterers. Um, I can shoot you some, some, uh, emails or pictures, but if you just, if you just Google Plasson Bell Waterer, it's a, they also call it a field drinker. It's a really slick thing. It's got a bell and it operates on a spring. So it's got a shutoff valve. Um, that's what I use in, in pretty much all of my poultry setups, whether that's the brooder or the tractors or the egg mobiles. Um, so I, I love that for a poultry waterer. I forget the brand, but, um, but any old va- float valve, uh, shut off for, for, uh, livestock drink tanks, uh, work, work very well. They've also got the, um, the square box, like top mounted, uh, float valve shut offs. Uh, gosh, what's the brand? I forget. But, uh, but yeah, you're going to want to spend a little bit of money on quality, uh, float valve shut off systems, uh, just so you're not getting a lot of, um, water leakage. And then tank wise, I mean, just any old live, livestock tank will do. Uh, I stick to uh, non-metal just cause they're stronger and more durable. And so awesome. Awesome. Um, what are some things you think people need to absolutely not do? I mean, you are at kind of a mid scale, mid to small scale commercial. Um, and there's definitely some differences like what I do now versus what I did when I was running 250 ducks, which are basically equivalent to like running a Dexter cow on weight and effect on the land. Now I'm running like 40. It's not even a thing. It's like we, we pick up eggs and we make sure they have food. Like there was more work then, but no matter the scale you're at, there are some things I think that I've figured out over the years, like don't do that. Are there, <laughs> you just say, don't do that. Don't, okay. Don't try and build your own pig feeders, um, or pig waterers. Just don't. Um, the, it's called the field drinker for, for, for pork. Uh, and, and then they make, um, oh gosh, 
it, a, a pig, you want a gravity feeder. I, I mean, I've, I've tried to bit, don't try and build anything for pigs. Just buy the manufactured stuff. It's, it's less destructible, um, or more indestructible and it's designed that way. Um, gosh, what are the other like absolute don'ts? You know, a good, if you're just getting started, uh, look at every species you're getting and saying, okay, I'm going to kill, I'm going to slaughter, butcher, clean, eviscerate and, and, and make that, turn that animal into meat on my own land. Right. Yeah. Um, whether that be a cow, sheep, pig, turkey, like if you, if you bring the mindset of, I have to, I have to kill this animal with my own bare hands, even if you don't. Right. But I think that mindset will help keep you from out of like scalability problems early on. Um, you know, what are the chickens, the gateway drug, but man, it's, it, it happens quick. And so you can, you can get overwhelmed. And so just having that kind of a mindset is very helpful. And, uh, and again, I, I would, I would tell anyone like pick someone, pick, pick a mentor. Pick a person or a, 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 a or a, a philosophy and stick with that. I, you know, again, I if I had a nickel for every time someone said, "Hey, you should try this way," and it's like I, I appreciate that, but I'm still trying to get good at this other way over here, and so I, I think people can get in the weeds really quickly, and um, and that's that. It's not good. It's it's counterproductive. Yeah, I would, I would add to it, like, one of the big things is don't go too fast, too, too far too fast. Actually get good at something. Like, if you're, and I know you said you like two animals, but man, if you can, like, go, so I'm going to get chickens, right? And somebody said earlier, I think, I think raising chickens for eggs is easier than raising cats and dogs. And I, I, I think to a degree, other than if you understand a chicken messes stuff up, if it gets a chance and it will, it will poop all over your garage or your deck or whatever. So as long as you contain the chicken either into the area you want the chicken in or out of the area you don't want it, it's about as self-sufficient as it gets. But if you can completely optimize your chicken infrastructure, and I've got this laying flock, and either I buy broilers or I make my own meat birds every year, and I got that down then when you say, you know what, now I want to start raising some pork and you go out and get your six to eight pigs and you raise some for your cousin's uncle's former roommate or whatever. Uh, and then for yourself, now you can focus on nothing but mastering the pig, right? Now you've mastered the pig. And if you do that, I think you'll find that you will, you will kill less animals because one of the biggest pieces of advice I have for people when you start getting into livestock, you're going to kill some. And not necessarily at the end so that you can eat it. You're going to mess something up. You're going to think, oh, this screen door would make a great top for my brooder. And you're going to put a bunch of baby chickens in it like I did. You're going to take a nice, big, giant steel stock tank, two feet deep, six foot long, like Tractor Supply had. You're going to stick it out in your barn. You're going to throw your screen door on top of it. And you're going to come in in the morning. There's going to be one chicken left alive and a hole about that big where a rat chewed a hole through that screen. And went in there and killed all the chickens. Like, you're going to do that. or You're going to get turkeys and, like, a couple of them are going to kill themselves. Or you're going to order ducks in the mail and one's going to come quasi-modoed from turning upside down. Like, you're going to have this happen. And so accept that. Do all you can to mitigate it. But 
you're going to have to develop the skill of being able to even look at a bird and go, yeah, before that little duck starts walk, you know, pulling itself around with one lame leg, I already recognize there's, there's probably a, a nutritional deficiency in here, and I forgot to include yeast flakes with my baby's food while they're brooding, right? Like, you don't know that, and I can tell you that, and you think you're going to remember that, and no, you're not. You're going you're gonna to develop this. This is like ancestral wisdom that if you would have told a schoolboy any of the shit that we're talking about that's so in- informational, if you would have told a schoolboy this in 1895, he would have looked at you like you're an idiot. But who doesn't know that? Right. Get out of my way and let me learn my calculus in seventh grade. Right. That's that's how we were back then. Today, we lost it. So we have to relearn it. You, br- you brought up a good point. And, and uh, to, to all your listeners, I don't think we talk about death in, in beginning farming enough. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Be prepared. Um, yeah. OK, so and, and remember, it's your fault, and it's also not your fault. Okay, yeah. so um, I, I think that's big. You know, Jack, I would say I, I, I want to agree with you and like start small and maybe just a single species. It yeah. it is a big jump when you start multi species. Um, and I would say, you know, like from day one again, if you're small enough from day one, like learning how you know, an herbivore or a ruminant and poultry interact, learning that timing. I, I do think there's incredible value in that. I, you know, if you're going to make mistakes, you might as well make mistakes in a multi-species type environment. Um, you know, contextually, again, is this a homestead or is, or, or, uh, are you wanting to do this as a viable, you know, business, but homestead, yeah. you know, I think about, okay, I'm here, I'm here every day. Um, I mean, my, you know, one of my biggest challenges is day job, right? Uh, so I, you know, I've got to be able to be very tight with my stuff and get everything done because I'm gone and not monitoring and I'm on 350 acres. So there's a chance I'm not staring out the window at whatever it is that I'm raising, right? So in a homestead environment, again, cause it's so proximate, you know, let's, we've got a five acre or a 10 acre homestead or even a two acre homestead. The ability to look out the window and see what you're growing is a is a really big deal. Um, and then again, I I love the idea of pairing, even if they're not like perfectly paired, like you know rabbits and 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 uh, rabbits and sheep, or even rabbits and turkeys. You know those aren't yeah those aren't perfectly aligned species, but you're going to, you're going to immediately know, okay, I got to treat these animals this way and these animals this way. Yeah. And then here's how they marry together. You know, it's almost, it's three different things simultaneously. So. And there's some other schools of thought to go with too. And like one would be if you raise two species, but they really occupy the same space and have required the same care. Um, while my ducks need water, taking care of my ducks and taking care of my chickens is one thing. I make sure there's water and food every day. I make sure they go where I want them to go. They don't go where I don't want them to go. They all live in the same house, right? And then the other thing, that this is like, you know, for your case, I say one, but I've always done at least two. Um, and sometimes that leads you to move faster in determining what's right for you. So we have some chickens because chickens are cool. And I found out that the bantam chickens don't mess all my stuff up. Right. That's 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 why we had like we have these little chickens. They they brood duck eggs for us. 
They hang out. You can pick them up and throw them on your shoulder, and they don't scratch anywhere near to the level, but they do a really good job of compost processing for us. And basically, I give all my Bantam chicken eggs that I don't eat to my dogs, so they make dog food. But I, I'm a duck farmer. That's what people say. What do you do? I'm a duck farmer. Well, the way I know that is I farm ducks and chickens side by side, and I went, ducks work better on my operation. So by doing a two or three animal thing, you may discover that like, well, you know, uh, sheep don't work well for me or goats don't work well for me or whatever, but you're not down to zero now. Mm-hmm. Like you found this other thing and this thing does. And then you say, okay, now what is my, what is my extra, what is my next thing I bring in? Right. So I think it, I think it can depend, but man, I'm telling you the biggest mistake I see is people jumping into this without the infrastructure in place. So. Mm. We've talked about getting chickens. Mom and dad and the kids are at tractor supply during chick days. We hear peep, peep, peep. We look in, you know, mixed pullets. That means they're all girls. It's supposed to mean they're all girls, just saying. And so all of a sudden we go home with two dozen baby birds peeping. We're trying to put together a brooder. I'll figure out the rest while they're getting brooded. Three weeks goes by like that. There is no coop. There is no fencing. Feeders are a bowl which just is a recipe for rats. Like you got to get the base infrastructure in place before the animal, because now that, like I said, you put them in a box, they didn't ask to go in a box. You have to give them what they need. No, that's a good, that's a really good point. I, I maybe we should put together a, a starter kit, uh PDF or something like that. Like before yeah. the chicks come home. Yeah. <laughs> Have these things nailed down. No, that's, that's you can a even really do it speciated, point. right? Like you can have a, just a grid. It could be a single page. You know, if you eat chickens, you need these things. And if like when you see a comparison, like buying this model versus this model, and it's like you know uh, has TCP/IP doesn't have it. You know, then there's so like you have checks and X's. You don't need this. You do green. You need it. X. You don't need it. Maybe there's like an orange check mark that means. It would be a good thing to have, but you don't absolutely need it so that a person could just go, we need to get this shit in place because I see it all the time. I get emails all the time. I don't know what to do now. Well, you need a coop. You got to get a coop. You got to build it, buy it. Like I don't have a, I don't have a magic coop portal where I can like beam one to your house for you. Like your birds need a place to live. Three, a 3d printed, uh, printed chicken, coop? Uh, chicken coop. I like it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So build an yeah, air creed coop, and then you'll know how to build an air creed house, right? You know, man, you, you're, you you're actually take, you're taking me back to I'm ha- I'm having a little bit of of new farmer memory, uh, yeah, pop to the surface. Yeah, what you, uh, uh, what what were you asking me? Oh, I don't remember now. <laughs> I do. I was going to say though, when you say new farmer memory, like I think that we do have a tendency. Like I've been doing, you you do a much higher level and much more animals, much more production. Than I do, but I've been doing what I do here nine years now. And when you're like, ah, just get them, and chickens are easy, and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot all about how I killed twenty of them with a rat and a screen door. I forgot. Like I I remember that, but I don't think about it. And I probably haven't thought about that experience in six years. But having this conversation today, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember. I could tell you right now in my head, I can visually see what that hole looked like. And I can remember feeling sick to my stomach knowing I, I was actually surprised. We found one chicken that, like, she hid 
And we had to get more chickens because they were little. They were only like a couple days old. We called her Snow White because she had no friends. So she had, she like attached herself to me. And I'd be walking around. I had this little tiny white peep would follow me everywhere, you know? And like, I, I, I didn't kill them, but I killed them. And yeah. so you tell somebody, just get chickens. They're easy. Get a secure brooder. And you know what a secure brooder is. You know that quarter inch hardware cloth on the top will stop a rat. But you also didn't even think about that being a problem. My thought when I put that screen door on the roof wasn't keeping things out. I had to, they're in the barn. The door was closed. No dogs, no cats, you know, no raccoons, no possums. I wasn't worried about that. Never even entered my mind that a rat would be like, ooh, piece of candy, ooh, piece of candy. Never thought that. So we do have to kind of like when we're giving advice, pull back and think, yeah, think of all the shit that I did that was wrong. Yeah, and again, I will I will point to the work of of Salatin and Justin Rhodes, uh, Darby. I mean, I, I'm just thinking now, like the first time I learned the lesson of if you're going to move small birds, like you know, think about from the brooder to the field, right? That's that, that's a move yeah. that everybody has to make, right? And yeah. the birds are still small, you know, they're still yeah. a couple inches tall. If you try and do that any other time other than at four in the morning or at 10 o'clock at night, those birds are going to go nuts. And for those of your listeners that don't know, a baby chick's talons are like little razor blades. And when they start crawling all over each other, they literally just lacerate. It's like Edward Scissorhands just had a, 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 a an hour with, with your chickens. And of course, then they get to the field and that gets infected and, so little things like that, um, little tips and tricks you learn along the way, I think are very important. You know, Jack, again, I, I'm going to push people a little, you know, I'm going to push them into the water with both feet. I, I do like the idea of small. The other thing you brought up, which I think would be really smart, again, if it's a small, if, especially in a homesteading situation, why can't you run ducks, chickens, and turkeys at the same time? You can. Right? There's no reason it's, not to. Yeah, and, and then you maybe figure out, because you don't know, and none of us do, then you figure out, well, you know what? Ducks do a little bit better on my pasture, or, or, or tur- you know, turkeys do a little bit better given my climate or whatever. And, of course, they all have different ages and different, you know, different life lifespans. But, but then uh, you also have to, like, if you're going to do that, like, you can run them all together. And when they're all about three weeks old, yeah, they can all go together. They'll get along. If you're brooding ducks and chickens in the same brooder, They'll usually get along, but if you haven't ever brooded ducks before and you don't understand what happens if you give ducks free access to water, you're going to have matted down, wet, dying ducks and chickens, not just ducks. So that's right. I don't know if you ever saw, I developed the, I call it the shit catcher. And basically I build a little frame and I cover it with quarter inch um, hardware cloth and I put a pan underneath it. And then that goes in the brooder and then your brooder bedding goes around that. And then you sit your water on top of it. Because what will happen is the ducks get in that water and they want to play. And they, they want to play on day one. Like a duck in water, instantly uh, it's time to get the water out. Well, if you don't do that, what happens is they build a little bass pond. Then they get soaked and wet. They don't know how to preen yet. Then they get cold. Then they all pile up. And then the ones in the middle freeze and get crushed. And the ones on the outside, if they're not right under the heat lamp, they freeze and die. So, But you put the little shit water catcher in there and then nobody really gets that wet and 
again, the chickens will end up wet with the ducks. So if you've never done that before, you're like, I'll just throw them all in there. And now you've killed both. And mm-hmm. so like, and if it happens, it happens, but that's why folks like you and I, we, we try to educate to these things because, so I had an old mentor one time. This guy was a North Carolina redneck with a Harvard MBA. Dangerous man, right? And he, he was really good at asking you questions and he, you know, I was young and dumb and energetic and he was good at asking you leading questions that he knew how you were going to answer them. He's like, would you rather have somebody that learned from somebody that, that, that's, you know, already learned or somebody that learned by experience? And I'm thinking, learn by experience. And he's like, so if you had a doctor and just as they were about to put the thing over your nose and knock you out and he's going to do cardiothoracic surgery on you, he said, don't worry, I've learned 100% by experience. How would you feel about that? And I'm like, oh, I see what you did there. Okay. And I think there's the balance. Like you get the experience, but the foundational knowledge of here's these things that always work and here's these things that always don't work. So an example of always don't work, putting a water in a brooder with ducks with no mitigation strategy always kills ducks every time. Like yeah. there's no way that it will happen. I'm reminded of the, of the serenity prayer and thinking about that. <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the strength to accept the things that will not change, to change the things that I can and the knowledge to know the difference. Yeah. You know, it's, Hi, I'm Jack. I'm a duck addict. It's been 12 months since I killed my last duckling by accident. (laughs) Please let me have some gravity coffee now. Let's get some questions and then we'll let you go Um, because you are mobile today. For those that don't see the video, he's sitting in his car here. We got a little bit of uh, sunlight cracking the window on him. Hopefully it's not cooking him or anything. Um, uh, Will you touch on how you got your first customers then off your first plateau? Touch on how I got my first customers and then off the first plateau. I think what well, you use my plateau is like, so you got a customer base, you, cause this happened to us, then you bring in more production and then you got to sell the additional production. Gotcha. Uh, you know what? I think this is absolutely uh, applicable at the homesteader level. So here's what I did. I had a bunch of friends. Um, we, we were moving from Atlanta to East Tennessee to sort of do this, but I, I you can apply this in, in a very micro. I basically went around and said, who wants in? And I took money. I took a deposits of 500 to a thousand dollars. And I said, you're going to, this is, this is, uh, you have full capability to take this money and spend it however you want. I just need it now. And so I, I gave everybody 10% bonus, mm-hmm. right? This is how I started my buying club. So if you gave me $500, you got $550 worth of farm credit. Okay. Right. And so, and so I raised about 10 grand doing this. And I took that 10 grand and I went out and I bought a small batch of broilers and a small batch of, uh, actually, let me, let me back up. I invested in a small batch of broilers and a small batch of pigs and a small batch of layers. I put that money up and with, with zero expectations. And six months after that, you know, when I figured out, well, stuff's going to die, but it's not always going to be necessarily my fault and I can, I can actually manage this. Yeah. Then, then, then I went out and, and, and approached people and said, here's what I'm going to try to do. So, um, you know, and, and be very upfront. This is going to be multi-speciation. You're going to have chicken. You're going to have beef. However you want to do it. If you want to do this for your garden, it's, it's kind of a CSA model, give or take. But, but that's how I got started. And so you get immediate buy-in from your neighbors and you get a little bit of cash to go, you know, along the way. And then you, you can also, I didn't solicit this, but you could 
you could also solicit their help. Um, you know, their physical, physical help, but that's how I got started. I think initially we had about 22 customers, uh, which again, in a, in a, in a homesteading situation, you know, 22 neighbors, not hard to feed or at least be a cog in the wheel of feeding, uh, that many people. Um, so that's how I got started. And then I guess, uh, plateau, like the next step. Yeah, I guess maybe what they're asking. Um, well, I mean, the first step was self exploration. Yeah. Right. Let let me make sure I can at least sort of handle this and, uh, learn that in a couple months. Uh, it's, it's a steep, steep learning curve, but it, but it's over pretty quick. Um, I mean, I'm still learning today, but yeah, uh, that would, I would say do it yourself first, make as many mistakes without, without taking other people's money or commitments as, as you can. You know, read deeply, study deeply. Uh, Justin Rhodes, Joel Salatin, again, pick, pick somebody and just, just hyper focus on how they do things. Um, but yeah, the, the plateau was, the next plateau was, was I can do this, put it out into the, into the world, into the community, into my friend group. And, um, and people were interested. So I, I got, I got, legitimacy by them being interested and, and the money to go with it. So like when we did the ducks commercially, um, we tried this, the same thing everybody does. We went on next door, we went to local shops, we, you know, and we found out that everybody around here sold chicken eggs for like $2 a dozen huh. and no, no one understood the premium in a duck egg. So then we started marketing more like on Craigslist and stuff like that. And that's part of why I did the duck chronicles where we did how we raised the ducks. So then people could look and see like, without having to come here and tour the whole farm over buying a dozen eggs, they already knew the care that we took, the differential in what we were doing. So we started getting customers and we went right to eight bucks a dozen on, on the duck eggs. And then we started like, okay, we can do more of this. So we started adding more ducks. Then we reached out and we started hitting things like chiropractors because chiropractors are always talking about people about their health. And they always have people like you, you find a lot of chiropractors have grabbed onto the keto uh, paleo thing like that. And sooner or later, they're going to run into clients that are like, I can't use eggs because of egg reactions. Turns out a whole shitload of people that have chicken egg reactions don't have reactions to duck eggs and really don't have a reaction to eggs if they don't have soy in them. So we were marketing it. So we picked a few chiropractors were just pitching us people. Then we picked up a restaurant. And then we found the coup de gras, the way to sell every surplus duck egg we ever had whenever we had too many duck eggs. My wife goes and gets her nails done. Because the Asian community is absolutely apeshit over duck eggs. And you'll find a lot of these ethnic markets, there's things you can raise that they can't get anywhere else, and they will go nuts for them. And so my wife will, like, go get your nails done, and she'll fill a cooler up with duck eggs. And, like, it's just she's dealing drugs, man. You got all these these little girls out, and she'll sell every freaking carton of eggs we have. On So, like, it paid for her nails, plus we made a profit, and she's going to get her nails done anyway. And so, like, I'm like, literally, you could go to every nail salon and just be like, hey, I got duck eggs in the cooler. And they'll buy them because they don't have another option. The guy I got my Muscovy stock from, he sells live ducks to Laotian community. He's got a lot of Laotians around them. And so he doesn't really like selling drakes to people like me because we don't want to pay as much for a breeder as he can get for a meat bird. So he's selling these birds 35 to $40 for a live Muscovy drake seven months old. Because that's about where they really fill out and they get that big breast and all. So he's getting 35, 45 bucks for a duck. And he's like, here's your duck. 
hands off. Now he can't sell 10,000, right? But he can sell a hundred a year and it's cash money in the pocket, never happened, gone. And like when I look at stuff like that, I'm like, there's always a way to get started. Friends, family, what have you. But I think most people will find if they try the conventional next door, local thing, you might pick some people up, but people are, you're, you're such a small sampling of people that don't see value. And maybe now they would see more because now like there's shortages and all, but there's somebody that wants what you have. And the key to marketing is finding them. That that's always the key. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I like what you said there too. It, again, the approach of going and out and talking to people about what you're wanting to do. This was, this was again what I did with, with our buying club. It gives you the opportunity to have that conversation about, about the why. This is why I'm doing this, you know, regenerative yeah. peace or food sovereignty or whatever the case may be. You know, I, I do like the idea. We used to say, you know, check with your local CrossFit gym or a chiropractic office or a Weston A. Price foundation chapter i mean there's a bunch of different communities micro communities out there and, and you can find them on facebook or social i mean use use social media to find them but you know walk in the door there have a plan here's what i'm trying to do here's what i need who's in and just see i mean it's yeah yeah uh, matthew asked about squab i'm sure that's something you have like no experience with i have a very limited amount i had a uh, uncle great uncle that, that kept pigeon for Totally different reason uh, in Pennsylvania. I don't know if it still is, but back then it was still legal to shoot them like you're shooting skeet. And there was actually big money in pigeon shooting competitions. They put them in a box. You say pull, they pull it. The pigeon flies. Way harder than shooting skeet, by the way. These guys are good at what they do. But it was, you know, they're raising pigeons. I think they're one actually one of the most raised livestock in the world. There's parts of the world where people literally build housing for pigeons into the side of their dwellings. Um they're easy and they feed themselves a lot. And I've never done it, but I've always been tempted because you can build a trap and like in any city you can go trap pigeons. And I, unless you go to the real legal wrong place, some weird park or something, there's no laws against it. So there's no getting in trouble. Um, so you can, you can source birds for free anywhere. Baby pigeons, squabs, pluck easy. They taste delicious. And a small pigeon that you're taking as a squab is bigger than a dove. So it's, oh, a, yeah. it's, it's a decent amount of meat, but I don't know anybody really doing it, but uh, we'll save it for another episode. But I can tell you how to build a trap for them and catch as many as you want, which begs the question, do you need to raise them or do you just go trap a few dozen whenever you want to stock up? I mean, a pellet gun and uh, a day out of like a lot of farmers that have grain stores and all. Derek, you know, I want to come shoot pigeons on your place with an air rifle or a 22. Come on. Come on out and do it. We used to shoot them every year in dove season, the farm we used to hunt when I was a teenager, uh, and the farmer loved us for it. Like, we'd be shooting doves, but we would put out decoys, and if the pigeons would come in over the decoys, we'd take the pigeons out. Um, I don't know. You got anything on pigeons? <laughs> Is well, that not it's, it's not a wheelhouse of mine. I'm usually, yeah. I'm usually shooting pigeons off the top of silos. But, yeah. you know, there, there are similarities with, with all birds. Uh, I would say, uh, I think his, in his comment, he said something effective. He's way far away from the cities. I would not shoot or eat a city pigeon. Yeah. Uh, there's just no telling what they get their hands on. But, um, I, I don't have much to add b okay. beyond that, Jack. We got one. What fencing would you recommend for pigs in a non electrified paddock? <laughs> 
Don't do that. <laughs> well, okay. To, to clarify, a non-electrified paddock. So is this like a holding cell when you're getting pigs? If that's the case, if, if it needs to move, it needs to be, I'm sorry, it's yeah. electric fencing, it's lightweight, period. Um, if this is like a corral or a place where you're, you, you know, you bring the pigs to your farm and, and, and train them to electric fence, cause that's what you're, you're going to yeah. do. I mean, I would, I would say your hog wire or even a cattle panel, um, cattle panels. And, and for those that don't know, I'm talking about like the four by four metal, yeah. uh, sheets. I think they come 16 feet long. Uh, cattle panels are cheaper than hog panels for some reason, or at least the last time I priced them. But you got to be careful if you're getting really, really small pigs, they can slip through the holes. But yeah, any, anything that's weaned, I would say, you know, eight to 10 weeks old, I, I think a, ha- a, a cattle panel will hold them. Um, but again, it, to answer the question, I would say hog or cattle panels. Um, but everything needs to push towards training to electric fence. See, that, that breaks the Salatin rule, too, though, because you're really kind of like, I guess if you're building a little 16 by 16 holding area, sure, but if you're actually putting in paddock to rotate pigs through and you're doing that, you can do it, T-posts, cattle panels, et cetera, and open gates and let them into the next one. Like, But, you know, what Joel says, you, if you think I want a fence there, put a temporary fence there. In three years, if you still have it, now you can put a permanent fence in, right? And I think that there's... It, a lot of wisdom because a, a fence in the wrong place that's a permanent fence is a type one error, right? I mean, well, I yeah. Uh, let me, let me offer this though. Um, because I use hog panels and T posts all the time. Uh, you know, if I've got hogs to load up, I'll, I'll take, I'll build a temporary corral or paddock in the middle of a field somewhere. So you talk about technology. One of the technologies we got now is these amazing T post pullers. You yeah. Know, so I can, I can drop a T post, you know, four inches into the ground just to hold itself. The hog wire goes into like a corral setting. I open up my electric fence. They come into the corral. I can sort. I've got a loading chute over here. I mean, it's very, very simple to do that. And it all breaks down, loads back up on the trailer and it's out of the field in like 20 minutes. Okay. So, okay. um, uh, you know, I, I, a lot I of heavy shit to move, though. I'm just gonna say, like a bunch of hog panels and all. Like, I, I guess it depends on what you're doing. Like you said, um, let's let's move on from that, though. Yep. Unless you got anything else that's really important, so we can get you out of here. Uh, Fred says, if you live on a quarter acre and have kids running around the yard, how would you keep ducks, like one or two ducks, and how would you keep them off a of ground level deck? I'll take that one. Um, first of all, you don't want one or two ducks because you don't want one duck, and if you get two ducks, you're gonna have one duck eventually. And one duck is a miserable, unhappy duck. Birds live in flocks. They don't live alone. And when you see these cute little videos of the kid coming home school and ducks all excited and waiting for him, that's because that duck is freaking miserable and has no other ducks. So I wouldn't go less than four to a duck flock personally. How do you keep them off a ground level duck, deck with a fence they can't fit through or fly over? And that's it. Because wherever you don't want them, they will go there and they will shit. And duck shit is way nastier than chicken shit. It's wet and it spreads. So um, we just put, like, black, kind of looks like what you'd expect to be, like, the fencing on an apartment uh, patio, all from our front, uh, our, our back backyard kitchen area and backyard deck area and it, it, kind of a beautiful area. We put a big roof over it and all because the ducks were coming up there crapping all the time. And wherever you don't want them, that's, that's where they'll go. As far as coexisting with kids, ducks and children coexist. You don't even have to worry about it. Your kids can play. The ducks will 
go do other duck things. They can be fine. If you have dogs, then you need to train your dogs that the ducks are not food. And that's more than we can get in today. Do you want to add anything to that? I would say uh, you're going to end up training your kids to the ducks more than your ducks to the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Leave the ducks alone and they'll be fine. And then you're going to have to have a water solution and it has to be dumped and moved every day because they're going to crap it up uh, no matter what you do. And if you put it in one spot and you dump it there every day, you're going to make duck creep. Duck creep is where they pack it down with their feet and they make a, like an area where nothing will grow. It's over fertilized and over compacted. So you have to have enough room to be able to give them enough water and four ducks, one standard size kiddie pool. That'll work, but you'll find that it won't last the season. You'll get a pinhole in it. So probably two 21 gallon concrete mixing trays for that. James says tractor or stacked pens for quail. I don't know. I did quail in an aviary. Um, I have done tractor, I have done tractored quail. It did work. My experience with quail is it's like, you know, when you put chickens in a tractor and you're so happy when they get just a little bit bigger because they're less likely to die when you move the tractor, the quail never gets that big. So the only way I've effectively tractored quail is we actually built caging with large grid floors. So you could just literally pick the cage up, move the cage and set it down. I have not been able to effectively tractor quail the way you do, um, uh, chickens and i don't think electronet would work i no i just wouldn't even try what do you what do you, you got anything on that no i i have not personally done quail i've got some people that do it here and and i like the idea like more like a rabbit pen for quail that's got a solid or not a solid but a, like a rail bottom where grass can get through but they can't I like your idea. You can pick yeah. it up and move it, even though we tend to, tend to drag stuff. But uh, Yeah, and you can take any kind of, like, anything that's got a small enough grid the quail can't get out and something can't stick its hand in and kill the quail because, like, raccoons will totally pull the heads off your quail. Like, that's a thing. And then you can take the bottom and you can make that grid bigger just by cutting out. You just have to be careful of any places you prune. Like, if you use quarter-inch hardware cloth and, um, like, mini hog rings, you can slap together a cage, like, that fast. And it's light, right? And you build some doors on it. And mine are a much higher end as far as the material. They have like two roof lids that open and then one side lid. And what that lets you do is you open the two roof lids and you stick your hands in there. It's like handles. And you can just pick them up and move them. And I think they're right on the neighborhood of two by four feet. And you can do a good amount of quail in them. And we use them like even sometimes like I get my chickens and baby ducks outside way before most people do, like less than a week old. I start putting them outside, and we put them in there because nothing can get to them. Um, just some additional thoughts on that. Uh, Jessica says she's looking to cut feed costs as much as possible. You want animals that forage, and you want to build them good forage is the number one thing I think you can do. With my ducks, I've also found make them work. So I feed my ducks. I used to feed them in the morning, and then that way it was done, and I didn't have to worry about feeding them for the rest of the day. Now I feed them in the evening when they get really angry at me and start yelling at me when I'm out on the porch saying, hey, asshole, we want some food. And that way they pretty much wipe the food out in the evening. There's a little bit left. They come out in the morning, they eat that up, and then there is no food. So now they go work for a living, right? And before I did that, they would just, like, plow through it, and then they would all be out there bitching at me in the evening for more. So I think that's, like – being strategic about how much you give them, I, that's not really, a, that's not going to work for tractoring. But I, I think Joel says something along the lines, if you figure out 
how much feed they should get to grow them out, put them on good pasture, and cut them to a 60% ration, they have to work for the other 40. I believe that's in one of his books. Yeah, I, I, I don't, make them work. That's that's number one. I, my question is, what is she feeding? Uh, yeah. So. And with our delay, we, we really don't know, I guess, you know. But I think anything goes under that. And then what else do they eat? Like, we have ponds, and we grow uh, a plant called water hyacinth. And it has uh, more protein per dry weight than soy. And ducks love it and chickens love it and goats love it. And it's considered a noxious, invasive, you know, species or whatever. But literally everything eats it. And so I have it set up where I have a pond behind the duck house that they can't get to because they will totally mess it up if I let them in there. And it picks up, it mats together, and I take a pitchfork. And I, and I have the fence on the other side where we have, like, the, the daily compost dump. And I can just, whoop, and I just throw it over the fence, and I throw them as much as they'll eat. And it costs nothing. Like, so what can you grow that they eat? Black oil sunflower is great. I like that because you don't really have to do anything. So what I do with black oil sunflowers, I cut the heads off and let them dry, throw them in paper bags, throw them in the barn. And then when I want to feed them, I just throw a dried head with the – they'll take the seeds off. Uh, I've grown sorghum for them, and we just cut the tops off the sorghum and leave it and let it dry. And we just throw the whole tops, and they'll pick it clean. If you have geese, the geese know when the sorghum's edible, and they will totally chew the stalk until it falls over like a freaking um, tree. And then all the geese and ducks run in and eat the sorghum. So that's actually a good thing. That's self-feeding. Another thing I've done, I have elevated wicking beds. And no matter what I'm growing in them, I grow um, sweet potato. And I let the sweet potato trellis down. And then they eat off the bottom. And then it grows back. And then they eat off the bottom. There's a ton of things you can do. But you got, it, no matter what you do, if you don't make them work, you know, yeah. mower, lawnmower, you can feed bunnies with a lawnmower and, and, a, and a lawn, right? I mean. Well, and look at, I mean, again, depending on your where you are, you know, is there a local brewery or restaurant or grocery store where you can just pick up waste? Um, yeah. Those are other. Oh, yeah. Waste grain. Waste grain from distilleries and breweries. Hell yes. I mean, that's a that's. That's a fantastic source, and, and waste grain is – I mean, there's lots of critters that love waste grain. So. You know, I forgot about that. I used to have – I don't have one close enough where it makes sense for me to go get it, but I used to have a friend that he lived right next to a distillery, craft distillery, and he was down here about every couple of weeks, and he would bring me like a full freaking blue 30-gallon barrel of it every time he came because they were just, yeah, take all you want. And they loved it, and one of the things I don't think people get about that, if I'm doing a mash – for beer, whiskey, whatever, with grain, I'm extracting the sugar so the per-ounce protein content goes up, right? Because I've reduced the sugar, so they're going to eat till they get enough nutrient load out of it, and I'm leaving the protein behind when I extract the carbohydrate because the, the protein doesn't help me make ethanol. Sugar does. So the, your brewery or your distillery has extracted as much carbohydrate as they can from that spent grain, and that means that animal's getting a high-protein rel rel relative product, and I, yeah, we I forgot about that because I don't have easy access to it anymore. Uh, Christian says, fodder trees for ducks and chickens. All the stuff Nick Ferguson talks about, willow, poplar, uh, white mulberry, they eat it. They don't really eat it that much until the, the weather turns, and it's the last greenery. That's been my experience. Geese, 
eat the crap out of all of it. Geese, you can raise on grass. They eat hackberry. They eat black locust leaf. They eat all of the common fodder trees. Um, I'm actually being very careful with seeing what they will eat because I don't know if they might eat something that might not be good for them. Uh, but, yeah, I've not seen anything yet that really looks at black locusts as fodder except sheep um, and goats and geese. I mean, they they prefer it to anything. Like, we, we feed them out of hand. I taught my granddaughter how to do it, and she's always wanting to feed them now. Yeah. Anything on fodder? I'm, I'm, well, no, I mentioned we were experimenting with sheep right now, and it's it's amazing to watch the different tree fodders that they will eat. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm shocked that they eat black locusts, and I think you could grow as much of that as you want. People are like, well, there's thorns in it. But with black locusts, the new growth has no thorns. It's almost like it wants to be browsed. It's like it encourages its growth. Mm-hmm. So what you'll have is the main trunk has thorns, and then your main branches have thorns, but your new green stem growth has almost no thorns except right in the first uh, notch where it comes off the main tree. And that's what they want, and it must be sweet because, or palatable because they freaking destroy it. Um, green country agroforesties never raise livestock that's too big to bury. <laughs> if you go to cattle, you want a front-end loader, man, I guess. Um, I would, I'm going to add to that because we talked about death. Never underestimate the ability of an animal to kill itself. Um, we had cattle on the farm we managed in West Virginia that discovered um, Bodark with the uh, Osage orange. And if they eat one, it's not a big deal. If they eat like 50 of them, they get impacted and then they die. And a cow will eat 50 of anything that yeah. it can get its mouth on. Um, we had cattle, a cow not die, but almost die from overconsumption of acorns due to the tannins. Um, yeah. You got to think about these things, right? Like, cause so acorns, pigs, good acorns, cattle, uh, not so good. At least in my experience. Yeah, remember we can die from drinking too much water. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, goats for meat? I guess that's a question. It's in all caps. Yeah, sure. It's the, I hate it's the, goats it's, though. I, go, goats drive me nuts, but it's the most widely eaten meat on the yeah. planet. Uh, you alluded to this earlier, Jack. If you can get into like a mosque or a, a you know a, a Muslim community. Uh, they eat the hell out of goat. I mean, the part yep. of the problem in the U.S. is you got to find a market to sell it. I love goat curry. It's fantastic. Oh, I love uh, the I, goat is on my plate. I love the goat if my neighbor raises my goat. I don't want to raise the goat because they're a pain they're in the assholes. ass. They're assholes. They are. <laughs> you know, they really are. They climb everything. I've seen them walk trees down oh. and eat everything off a tree. To me, I think that lamb – and even mutton is every bit as good as goat. And they don't climb fences and they don't walk down trees and they don't get on top of your Porsche. Like John Willis from SOE, he had goats. He came home one too many times with goats on top of the Porsche. No more goats, right? Nicole has goats. They're on the roof of her house. Like they're just assholes. They really are. But they're delicious. But I mean, I personally, a hair sheep is a better, they browse. They, they have all the good of a goat. They get bigger, I guess, than some the big boar goats and all, whatever get bigger than maybe some of the sheep, but um, but but more than most of the goats people raise a a lamb, a well raised lamb to me will give you more meat than an adult goat of the type that most people raise, and they're not assholes. I'm just, 
It's just easier, man. That, and, and listen, I, I, I want to love goats because they will yeah. eat things that sheep won't eat. They will yeah. do things that sheep won't do, but they're assholes. The, 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 yeah. the saying is, if a fence won't hold water, it won't hold a goat. Hold a goat. That is yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then the last question is on rabbits. I don't know how much rabbit. I'm not a rabbit guy. I don't have much experience at all. Can I overwinter rabbits in a double layer greenhouse of any size with chickens? Maybe I would say probably, but you're going to have to figure it out. I don't know what overwintering means to in, in this context. I, I mean, you can because he's got hutches. They're outside. They're exposed to the elements. You know, overhead shade and whatever. But in the winter, it's maybe too cold for your bunny, so you move them into a greenhouse. I, yeah, I don't see just, why not. Put the, put the bunnies up and put the chickens down. I mean, if you've got cages, I, I'm assuming you can put those up on a – just elevate those above the ground, and, and, and the chickens will love it because the poop will fall down, and the chickens will run through the poop all day. Um, Double-layer greenhouse of any size. I, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming of any size. You, you're going to want to be able to fit everything in there. But All right, so no we have some questions. We got some other questions came in, but we're not answering. They're on like clams and mussels and crayfish. That's not what we're talking about today, guys. <laughs> but I will come back to you with uh, more aquatics uh, content in the future. Uh, with that, Charles, this has been a great interview. Uh, I'll, I'll let you go now. I want to kind of wrap the show up with uh, closing so I don't have to do any editing today. But I, I really appreciate you being here. You want to tell anybody uh, or everybody how they can learn more about you and what you do? Yeah, sure. I uh, The big thing, our, our farm is very small and we're not – we're not trying to grow right now, but Faro.life is our skincare company. This is the one born out of regenerative agriculture uh, that you and I spoke about uh, on my last visit, Jack. So people can find me there, Faro.life. Um, if you're interested, the, uh, the code survival is uh, save you 20%. Um, outside of that, you can find Facebook. I do have a farm page there, Mayfield Pastures, and an Instagram page as well if you want to keep up with what's going on there. But other than that, uh, that's about it. Well, Charles, thank you for being with us today. It's been a pleasure, Jack. Thanks. All right, guys, I am going to continue just a little bit here and do my wrap-up on the uh, on the live feed uh, with you today. And I want to talk to you again about our item of the day, and uh, it's still on sale at this price uh, today. And uh, I don't know how much longer it's going to last, but I'm going to uh, bring up the website and show you the product I'm talking about here. It is the uh, Banner Manufacturing Pondmaster Waterfall Skimmer Pump. It's a 2,000 gallon per hour pump. This is a screenshot I have on the blog with the write up. You can see it's on sale for 80 bucks and it's not listed as being marked down. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this back multiple days in a row as long as it stays at this pr uh, price. For those of you that have seen the aquatic systems I build, this is my go-to large pump now. This is the one I use. This is the one I keep in reserve, and I have five large systems. So I have five of these running all the time. And on top of it, uh, what I wanted to kind of like make sure that you, you realize is I, I have at least six of these pumps at any one time because even though this is a really reliable pump, pumps can and do die. So I have one sitting on my shelf. Since they're all the same, if a pump dies, or even if it like it just needs some TLC and I don't have time for it, I grab the pump off the shelf, pop the, the fitting off, stick the pump in and plug it back in, and in less than two minutes, 
that system is running again and I don't lose fish and, and what have you. When I saw this pump on sale for 80 bucks, I have one on the shelf. I bought a second one for the shelf because I've paid in the past never less than 130 bucks for this pump. There's this model and there's one that looks just like it that's a 3,000 gallon per hour pump. I have determined a 2,000 gallon per hour pump does everything I need in all my systems and it costs less, but the big thing is it uses less energy. This pump, I plugged it into a kilowatt meter and I turned it on and it drew 87 watts. 87 watts and it's moving and it totally moves the 2,000 gallons per hour plus. It delivers what it promises even at like say four or five foot ahead. It really moves some water. You can see at the bottom, there's a little skimmer grate down there. That's what will clog up with detris. And what you want to do is you want to pop that off and clean it and hose out the pump about once a month. And you, these things will last a long time. But with the spare pump on the shelf, what I do when one's kind of gummed up and I don't have time, I pop that cover off. I put that cover in the sun. I take the cover off the new pump that's perfectly clean. And I put it on there. And instead of getting gunk off, it's all dried off. I hit it with a garden hose. It's clean. So it's good to have extra ones. If you're talking small-scale aquaponics, an IBC and a couple tanks or something like that, you can use the active aqua pump that I recommend. But it's like 50 bucks. This is 80. Overkill's good. Just vent your extra pressure with a swing valve. Um, but on a larger system, unless you're talking a really big system, this is all you need. And that 3,000-gallon one, it used to be 150 bucks instead of about 130, 140 for this. It's now $200 because of supply chain. How this went down in price I don't know, but this is the pump that I use and that I recommend. I also have not included it yet, but I will, I will get it for you guys next week when I come back. I've been meaning to do a write-up. I have a float valve you can pair with this pump. It costs about 20 bucks. Uh, I have gone to using external float valves. I don't want a pump with a float valve anymore because pumps die and float valves tend not to. So by buying a separate float valve for the systems that I need a float valve in, I'm able to, if the pump dies, I can just unplug it and plug the new pump right back in and keep rolling. And a float valve is a good idea. When I talk about float valve here, I'm not talking about something that tops water up. I'm talking about a valve where if your water level gets too low, it shuts the pump off so it doesn't pump a thing empty that doesn't need to be pumped empty. And if you do aquatics long enough, you'll have one of those events. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I know I enjoyed doing it. You can find that product at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just start scrolling down uh, if you're watching this anytime near when it was published. Or you can also look it up by just searching for Danner, D-A-N-N-E-R, on the website. And you can always find everything I recommend and help me out by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's where all these product reviews go. If you see it there, I own it, I use it, I spent my money on it again, or I would not recommend it to you. And you can also check out my member support brigade. You get a bunch of discounts, pays for the cost of the membership plus every year for you, the survivalpodcast.com forward slash members, or just go to the site, click on the members tab. With that, I will, uh, I will be back with you tomorrow, uh, not live in video, but I will have an episode for those listening to the audio that's going out on Thursday for the audio. Friday will be an expert counsel show this week. I was able to not do any rewinds this week uh, because of the long episode on Monday. With that, guys, I will uh, catch you guys later. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you
you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. 